Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Good afternoon, Peter. Well, Paul, we've got an interesting show today. You know, we start off with uh, Dr. Ross Walker, described here as a neurosurgeon, but to me, he's a cardiologist who knows everything about everything when it comes to health. And you've had a bit of first-hand experience right. in that regard, he Peter. Certainly, he certainly saved my uh, bacon, which I don't eat anymore. Um, but he has some, look, he has some really fantastic ideas, very practical ideas about um, what you can and can't do and what you should do, I think. And yeah. I know that because there is so much information about what we should be doing with our diets right. and what things we should be taking and what exercise yeah. we should be getting, and it's all... Yeah. I find it very confusing, Peter. Yeah. So I, Ross actually simplifies this. There's yeah. a couple of things you need to do. When exactly. Things you can sort of and he does it in a very funny, amusing way. So look forward to being educated about how you should be looking after yourself by you know, with Dr. Ross Walker. But this, I just worked out this whole program today is about confusion because our next subject is the confusing area of divorce. And we're going to be talking to a, wait for it, a divorce coach, now, now, Cheryl what, Duffy. Now, just to... to Put that in picture, Peter. What is a divorce coach? Well, a divorce coach is someone who makes sure you win. <laughs> All coaches are in the game of winning and not losing. So obviously it's more than that. There's a psychological aspect. Some people really do need a helping hand, particularly if they've been left and they feel devastated psychologically. Yeah, I mean, divorce can be very traumatic, particularly if, uh, if perhaps you haven't expected yeah. The, the, your, your partner to do uh, to spring it on you. So yeah. I think there's probably a role for a divorce coaches Coach, and yeah, a divorce yeah. coaches and uh, as in everything in life, we have more and more coaches. We, we, we're coaches, so yeah, we, right, we coaches. understand the coaching business. That's right. And, the, and apparently gray divorce, which we'll ask you about, is on the rise. And the final area of confusion is power bills. They're telling you to switch, 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 but should you switch? We're going to ask a professor on the subject – Professor um, Bruce Mountain about whether it really pays to do all the homework to switch from and one supplier to the other. He's got some pretty interesting research that says that maybe, just mm. maybe, switching ain't always the best thing to do. Yeah. So, that, and that's contrary to what everyone tells you, Peter. That's I right. mean, it's what the government's been telling. It's what all the you know, whenever the advertisers tell you, advertisers too, tell and us. They so, can be trusted, um, and they can be tr <laughs> just as governments can be trusted on power too, yeah, Peter. We right. know all about that. That's right. Well, well governments are big on power. <laughs> big all right. Power. So that's the show. Uh, without any further ado, let's now go and talk to the wonderful Dr. Ross Walker. I, I want to actually get to understand. All of the, the things that most of us really should understand, but we just kind of just don't become an expert in because, well, maybe our health is not as important as we think it should be. Roger, are you with me on this? That I can't, I can't, I, I'm even feeling stupid saying it that our health is not as important as it should be, but well, are we like that? 
Yeah, yeah, I think human beings are because people do the immediate stuff that they think is urgent and they put the stuff that they don't see as not so urgent under the in the back burner and so I'm too busy to go and have a checkup or I haven't got any symptoms so why bother and and sure dad might have died in his 50s of a heart attack but why should I have a checkup because I'm feeling fine I look good I exercise I do all the right things and they don't realize that that the reality of heart disease so we just talk about my specialty cardiology Mm -hmm. the reality is that all heart disease is genetic it's all genetic so I'll give you two great examples. I pioneered in Australia about 20 years ago a test called coronary calcium scoring. Coronary calcium scoring is a CT scan that takes a non-invasive picture of your arteries and tells you how much muck you've got. So anything over 400 is serious. And what you want is a zero score, which 50% of males age 50 have a zero score, but 50% don't. So the worst calcium score I have is a 68-year-old man in the fitness industry, doesn't have an ounce of body fat, he has a normal cholesterol, blood pressure, never smoked, uh, not diabetic and no family history, but Peter, he has a thing called an elevated lipoprotein little A, which is, occurs in one in five people, and it's purely genetic. You can only get it in your bloodstream by picking the wrong relatives. So this guy's coronary calcium score is 8,500. <laughs> oh, gee. His arteries were like porcelain pipes, and he had coronary artery bypass grafting, and he's now doing fine. I saw him the other week, five years after his bypass. Uh, a year ago, he sent me a picture of him and his mates winning their latest basketball grand final. But the point is, had he been a profligate self-abuser, he, he probably would have had his heart attack in his 40s mm. and died. Mm. But because he'd looked after him so well, he, himself so well, he delayed the heart attack, and, or not the heart attack, but he, he delayed the presentation of his serious heart disease until his late 60s. And that's the first example. The second example is a person you and I know very well who's uh, one of the top surgeons in this country who um, can discipline himself over a, a little baby for eight hours doing intricate surgeries that you and I wouldn't even dream of doing. I wouldn't have the discipline to do it. He stands there for hours and hours and hours. But when he gets out of the operating field, there's no discipline. He's, he's significantly overweight. He shoots himself with insulin a couple of times a day. He, he's on 20 pharmaceutical pills, 66 years old. His coronary calcium score is zero nothing in his arteries. Mm. And you'd say, hang on a minute, this isn't fair, but it's called genetics. He's got wonderful genetics, whereas the other guy's got lousy genetics. And so all heart disease is genetic. You can't look at yourself and say, I'm great, I'm fit, therefore I don't have any problems. It's just nonsense. We often hear of people who die prematurely in their 30s, 40s and 50s, and there's varying degrees of different genetic heart disease. Okay, so the, the person who's got this uh, lipoprotein little A problem... Yep. Yeah, when should you screen for that? Because you said a guy could die in his forties. Uh, yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think probably age forty is the time to start. In fact, if I've got a, a people who I know have a high lipoprotein little A, I measure their children at about age thirty. I say, well, why don't you measure at age twenty? You know why? Because people in their twenties think they're bulletproof. They don't listen to you anyhow. Mm-hmm. They're not going to start taking the treatment I give for lipoprotein that lay in their twenties for the rest of their life. So you've got to wait till they actually start to think about their mortality, which I think starts about age thirty. People are starting to become successful. They're starting to have a family. So they're starting to think more about other people than just themselves. Mm-hmm. So I think thirty is a good starting point. But if you're otherwise healthy and you don't have a strong family history, age forty is a good time to have it. And the point about lipoprotein that lay, you own need it checked once. There is no point having it multiple times because it's either high or it's low. The treatment I use for lipoprotein delay, which is a series of vitamins and possibly a thing called nicotinic acid, 
what is it doesn't change the level much, but it stops the stuff getting into your arteries and causing problems. So, so what kind of things would would people take? Yeah. Uh, to, well, to, to, you know, if, if if someone listens to this and goes out and gets a a, a reading and a reading's not good, are, are yeah. all doctors going to recommend the same thing? No, not not the slightest. Doctors won't recommend what I'm saying at all because mm. they don't believe in natural supplements. Mm. So, so you, see, the reason why lipoprotein delay isn't routinely measured by most people, I do it all the time, uh, is because doctors say, "Well, nothing you can do about it." Well, I'll tell you a. a Another story of someone I know whose father had a heart attack at 55 and he had a stent in his arteries. So the 30-year-old son of this fellow, who's a friend of mine, I, I measured both their lipoprotein delays. They're both high. Now, when I measured the arterial stiffness in the 30-year-old, his arteries were quite stiff. So I put him on to vitamin C, vitamin E, and a thing called lysine and measured his ar- arter- and, and tightened his lifestyle up, measured his arterial stiffness two years later and it was back to that of a 20-year-old. So if you can get onto these things early, they do have an effect. Now, there are some treatments coming through for lipoprotein delay, so now the medical profession is starting to show some interest because there'll be a drug you can give people that will <laughs> plummet lipoprotein delay. But I've been doing this for years, and it actually works. So, no, doctors won't routinely measure it, but also, if you're lipoprotein, just, just say you go off at age 50 and have, have the blood test, the lipoprotein delay is high, then... You should have the coronary calcium score anyhow. If your coronary calcium score is very high, then you need aggressive treatment of that. If the coronary calcium score is zero, well, in your case, your particular lipoprotein delay isn't getting into your arteries. It's a bit of a complex topic. Mm. Um, and, for, and as you know, people, when people start talking about economics and money, my eyes glaze over because it's not, not my area of interest. Uh, but, but this is something important because the point is, it doesn't matter how much damn money you have. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a member of the Rich Club, one of the greatest books ever ever read. It doesn't matter if you're a member of the Rich Club. If you if your health's shot, then there's no mm-hmm. point. Now I, I saw a guy years ago who was one of the wealthiest men in Australia, not Mr. Packer, but uh, up up in that level. And this this fellow, his heart was so impaired he couldn't even walk down to his letterbox to get his mail. So what's the point of having all that money if you don't keep your health going? And 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 the point is with all the techniques I'll be talking about for the, the seminar coming up, I'll be able to give people the, the, real, uh, the real things they can bring into their life that will stop them having disease because the best treatment of heart disease, the best treatment of cancer, the best treatment of any modern illness is not to get it in the first place. And I believe over 90% of diseases that people are getting these days are completely preventable, but don't wait for your heart attack or your, or your bowel cancer operation. Start working on it now. See where you are with the right sort of assessments and practice the, the right keys of being healthy. All right, so, Ross, we could have a, a lot of you know, you know, young blokes who are aspirational and they listen to us because they want to get wealthy. And, uh, yep. and, and I, I figure I'll, if there's one thing – I went to – lunch recently with a, a female friend of ours who's quite a, an amusing woman and when we're having uh, our lunch uh, the waiter said to her would you she'd order steak you know in a very manly kind of way and uh, the, the waiter said would you like any uh, anything you know extra with that and she said yes I'd like bloke chips and so bloke salad and the, and the, and the, and the waiter looked as unusually and said bloke salad she said yeah chips now, it seems to me that when you go out, women are always sensibly ordering salad and we all order chips. Is our, yep. is our belief in our, in our bulletproof future uh, leading us to silly choices when it comes to food? I, I think it is in many ways. And, and let me say, when you talk about diet, 
that the key aspect of diet is not to avoid chips or steak, but the key aspect is to ensure that you have every day of your life two or three pieces of fruit, three to five servings of vegetables, servings about a half a carrot. And the people who do that in society have the lowest rates of heart disease and cancer, but less than 10% of people have that dose of fruit and vegetables every day. So the, the stuff that you add to your diet over the fruit and vegetables, I, I think it's important, but it's nowhere near as important as having those doses of fruit and vegetables every day. And we, we focus too much on, on saying, oh, meat, eggs, and dairy cause heart disease. It actually doesn't, and I'll talk about that during the seminar. But, but really what causes the problem, uh, processed packaged food, mask or processed packaged muck masquerading as food and and what I call white death which is sugar excessive white bread rice pasta potatoes and the potatoes are part of the chips that you're talking about so mm. look I don't think it hurts to have the occasional chip but, but I wouldn't go overboard with any of these things uh, apart from the fruits and vegetables which are positively good for you okay so my last question to you gets down to this um, what are the the standout signs that people should never ignore? Okay, the, the big one is any discomfort from the tip of your nose to your belly button. So I saw a guy today, a guy in his 70s, who about 12 months ago felt just a discomfort in his throat when he was walking down to collect his mail in the morning, three mornings in a row. And, he, and this very astute man says, you know, this could be my heart. Went off to the doctor, had a, had a 99% block in one of his arteries, had it stented, and he's now doing fine because he recognized the discomfort. It doesn't have to be what people call pain. It can just be a funny feeling in your chest when you exert yourself. Uh, it can be anything from the tip of your nose to your belly button. It can be a discomfort in the jaw. It can be a dis discomfort in the top of your tummy. So any discomfort that you're not sure about. So, for example, you go down to your local Indian takeaway and you have a very hot curry and you have a bit of burning in your chest afterwards, it's probably indigestion. You pick up something quickly and you get this tearing feeling in your chest, you've probably pulled a muscle. But if you're getting a consistent discomfort anywhere I said, that can be in your elbow, it can be in your shoulder, when you exert yourself that goes away when you stop or when you're un uh, unhappy about something that goes away when you calm down, that's that's a blockage in your artery and your heart until proven otherwise. Or, for example, if you're noticing increasing shortness of breath. So the exercise you could do easily is now becoming a bit of a struggle consistently. Or you're getting lightheaded or you're feeling your heart jumping out of your chest. Any of those things are an indication that something may, not not is, but may be going wrong with your heart. And that's when you've got to go off and have your checkup. They're all really good pieces of advice, and I must admit I'm very lucky that I've never ignored your advice. Thank goodness you haven't, because the world needs Peter Switzer. <laughs> okay, Ross, thanks for joining us. Okay, mate. Oh, now, hang right. on, before you go, they'll kill yeah. me, which is emphasise that you're going to be appearing live at the Sydney uh, Switzer Income Conference on November 11, and just recap on what you're going to be talking about. Okay, what I'm what I'm talking about on that day, and it will be uh, will be recorded. What I'm talking about is the five keys to ultimate health, and that's very simple. And I'm not going to talk about it now because I want people to come along and listen to it. Good on you, Ross Walker. Thanks for coming on the program. My pleasure, mate. And that was Dr. Ross Walker talking about all things important in terms of health. And on the subject of health, let's go to the next related subject: wealth. 
And we've got our Switzer event coming up, the Switzer Income Conference. Uh, if you're interested, Paul, give us the dates. You're always the expert on the dates. Yeah, Sydney, uh, November the 11th from Memorance Day. That's an easy one to uh, not yep. forget. Uh, Melbourne, the Tuesday, the 19th of November, and Brisbane, Wednesday, the 20th of November. Now, if you want to come along, you go to switzerevents.com.au to purchase your tickets. Sydney is getting close to full. Uh, Melbourne and Brisbane still have some seats. So don't leave it too late because we would hate to say you can't come. But once we're out of seats, we're out of seats. We've got a great lineup of people. Uh companies speaking and, and, and you of course will be speaking with, and I'll be doing a, uh, a, a master class on, uh, on finding income on finding income yeah. well that's what people want people want income and we've turned deposits so low what's the official rate Paul? official rate 0.75% for term deposit no for term deposit well look if, you, if you're really doing well you'll get about 1.5 1.6% crazy maybe a little bit more if you shop around okay. but uh it's tough out there. At the this is a conference for people who want to do better than 1.5%. Our next guest is Cheryl Duffy, the author of the book, The Divorce Tango. And she's recently set up a business called the National Divorce Center. Cheryl, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you very much, Peter. I've got to say, this is a, a really out there name, The Divorce Tango and National Divorce Center. As uh, Manuel from Faulty Towers would say, care. <laughs> so what's behind it? Well, The Divorce Tango is the book that I wrote to mm -hmm. help people guide them through divorce and help them rebuild their life. Yep. And then The Divorce Centre was basically pulling together a national team of lawyers, mediators, financial planners, psychologists and divorce coaches mm. Uh, to be able to help people through the whole end-to-end -end process of divorce, mm. just as a one-stop shop to help people through because it's a very traumatic time. Yeah, and and I guess the, the bottom line is why does it need to be all in one area? Is it from personal experience, you know how hard and how uh, anguish, cre anguish creating it is? Well, people feel very overwhelmed on where to start. So particularly the people that have been left, they're in shock, they're in denial, they're not really knowing where to go. So if they can come to a one-stop shop, which is a, a virtual divorce centre, mm. so they can basically be uh, put in touch with the right people mm. to be able to then uh, work through the process, the roadmap and the journey of divorce. Now, Cheryl, you talked about or you have been talking about grey divorce and I hope... Yes. I hope you're not looking at me at that category. Yet, but, but tell us about grey divorce, and I think grey divorce is also on the rise. So, what are what's this phenomenon of grey divorce? Why is it on the rise, and what can people do about it, if anything? Okay, well, for the past 25 years, grey divorce has doubled. Mm. So, the reasons behind that are threefold. So, women are more financially independent, and the stigma around divorce has disappeared. And we also have better health and longer life expectancy. So people are, are seeing that um, they don't have to stay in an unhappy marriage, that their life is too short and they can actually get out and, you know, start afresh and create the life they deserve. Is there a definition of grey divorce? Is um, is it an age thing or just It sort is of an a, age thing, yeah. yes. So it's it's people over the age of 40. It's between 40 and 50 and beyond mm -hmm. uh, that's classed as grey divorce. Mm. And is that, do you think, also with people living longer, expectations have changed? Maybe do people just get sort of maybe bored with each other? Is that is that one of the things that the kids go up, leave home and Absolutely. then question marks yeah. about what happens next? Is that 
Yeah, well, the empty nesters, once the kids leave home, they find as a couple the parents are unable to reconnect as a couple and that intimacy is lost, the spark's gone, the excitement of life, and they, they find that they've grown apart and they don't really have that much in common except mm. the kids. Mm. So then they think, well, you know, am I going to stay like this for another 20, 30 years or am I going to make the leap and create a new life? Has the growth in the value of homes made it easier for women to make that decision? Because I remember an old ABC television program where a husband was, you know, um, uh, harassing the wife and uh, her sister said, why do you stay with that bum? And she said, gas bills. Um, as people become more and more wealthy, do they become you know, more likely to, to think about divorce? I don't know whether it's more and more wealthy, but I think it's been more financially secure mm. in having a, an income that they can sustain themselves and mm. a lifestyle. Mm. So... So women that, in the workforce has been an important... Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's been a, a big reason why um, divorce has been enabled for women to be able to leave very unhappy marriages. Mm. So the financial impacts of divorce can be pretty significant, and we've heard a lot, or we know a lot about examples of people with kids, but uh, let's go to sort of the grey divorcee market. Um, what should people be doing there in a financial sense, or what do they need to think through as... When, when they're contemplating or, or, one, or the other partner is taking the step? Um, well, basically they need to make sure that they're well aware of what assets, what income is in the, in the family and be able, to, be able to look at superannuations, all the different things that make up the family wealth, the family estate, and then be able to work together to negotiate what that split should be. And, you know, usually it can be 50-50, but... If there are children and there's a primary caregiver, then sometimes the, the, um, the wealth, uh, the split goes more towards the person that's going to be looking after the children. And do you have any tips on how that's best done? Is it best to engage an external party, get solicitors involved, or should the partners try to potentially well, get an outcome themselves? What would your advice there be? I would recommend that they ensure that they have one consultation with a lawyer to know their entitlements, mm -hmm. but then it's far better to be able to negotiate together and be fair and work out how they want it to be split. Um, or else if they're just going to and froing between lawyers, having lawyers saying, oh, I can get you more, and they just lose hundreds of thousands of dollars over time, keep fighting over the, the family wealth. So you're not doing business for your divorce centre here, um, Michelle, we realise <laughs> no. that. Which no. is good, which is good. Uh, well, it's not good for your profitability, but I'm, I'm sure people listening think it's great. I came across something unusual uh, recently. This, the overall uh, overwhelming belief from a lot of men is that when they go into divorce and there's kids involved, that they often come out with uh, the worst end of the financial arrangement. And I'm not disputing that or making value judgments on it. But we came across a, a lady who was probably in her late 60s, and her husband had shot through with a mm. flight attendant or something like that. And and her lawyer basically said, don't expect the courts to be any you know, particularly fair to you because your husband has shot through with a younger woman or something like that and, and has really changed what her last 20 or 30 years in her life might look like, economically speaking. She's going to be dragged from a 
very nice house, maybe to a one or two bedroom apartment or something like that. It was going to be a really big change. And the lawyer said, don't expect to be treated all that well. So over time, do women lose their, um, their clout in the courts? Um, well, basically, there is the no-blame policy that came in in 19, uh, the mid-1970s. and Gee, a bloke must have made that one up. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's basically to protect both so that you can say, OK, you know, no matter how it all ended, this is where we're at mm. and we want to try to split the finances equitably. So whether the, the wife has been working, whether she's been um, staying at home, being the homemaker... You know, looking at it as a team together, this is what the family wealth has become, mm. and then being able to work out how to, to split that between the two of them. Mm. But it's not going to lean towards the woman um, if she's not going to be the primary caretaker and have small children to look after. Um, and, but some lawyers can look at, you know, if that, if that woman's been, out of, been able to not get a career to be able to be on the same financial standing, mm. then her earning capacity might be lower. And so they'll work out, um, based on their current situation, um, what the, the financial split should be. And, and is this business of yours primarily online and then you link people up to real people, either online or face-to-face if need be? Well, it's a virtual centre, so mm. people will either call in and we'll have Zoom sessions using the technology so you can see each other. Mm. And um, as a divorce coach, I help them through the, the process. And then when they need to be engaging with lawyers, mediators or financial planners, then they're able to basically engage with the right person at the right time instead of going engaging with a lawyer that they've just got off Google, going in there and sort of spilling out all of their emotional grief and the meter's just running, they're far better off to be able to be helped through the emotional support by a divorce coach and then be able to be just going to the legal team for the help for mm. the, the legal side of it. I'm sure some people are thinking, what do you pay for a divorce coach? Is it a percentage thing? or do No, you... no. It's generally around $150 an hour. Yeah, so an hourly rate. So, yeah. but of course, the more complicated you are, the more you end up paying, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Well, it depends on how long you need. Mm. So how long you need that emotional support for. So a a divorce coach can prepare you for divorce. They can then help you through the journey with the day-to-day challenges that you have and then help you rebuild your life so that you can look at Mm. what do you want your life to look like so you can put a plan in place to make that happen. But also you can look at helping them to rebuild their self-confidence and their self-esteem yeah. because over time that can be shattered, especially if they have been left. Mm. Um, they can then have problems with their own self-worth. Yeah. So, yeah, we help yeah. them with that. Yeah, I think <coughs> 10 years or 15 years ago, no one would have even thought of a, a thing like a divorce coach. But no. it seems like a pretty good idea for a lot of people. Cheryl, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you very much. And that was Cheryl Duffy, the author of the book, The Divorce Tango, and the founder of the National Divorce Centre. Now, this is the time when I remind you that if you want a really good Christmas present, either for yourself or for someone who might one day come along and want money from you, my book, Join the Rich Club, would be a really good idea. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, for uh, sons, daughters, grandkids, uh, people starting in and developing their finances. Or other hangers-ons. Or other <laughs> hangers-oners. Uh, look, a great book uh, available at uh, switzerstore.com.au. Yeah. Yeah. For the princely sum of $24.95. And you know what? I was at a conference in Melbourne the other day, and we, we had the book there on our stand, and some scabs 
who came across for free tips from me wouldn't even buy the book. And I thought to myself, like, who's not going to pay $25 to at least get one, one little fact that could actually be worth more than $25 when there's like, I would say, a thousand of them worth more than $25. I can't push this book any harder than that, Paul. You can't push it any harder than that, Peter, and I think you've done enough pushing. So, <laughs> Okay. So without any further pushing, let's go and talk to our next guest, and that is Dr. Bruce Mountain. He's a professor and director of Victorian Energy Policy Centre, and we're going to be asking him, is it really worthwhile doing all the hard work to switch from one energy supplier to another? Bruce, welcome to the program. Oh, hi. Hi. Hi, Peter. Um, now, uh, can I ask this question? Um, government regulators, um, uh, customer groups in Australia have all urged customers to switch retailers to get better deals. And is it true customers are actually doing it? So, Peter, yes. Um, the switching rates we have in Victoria, uh, not much lower in New South Wales, SA and Queensland, are amongst the highest in the world. So people are switching in large measure, which is absolutely fascinating. So um, this message uh, that customers should switch, should switch has been getting across and people have been switching. Have you worked out whether the, the actual benefit of switching is as big as it's implied in a lot of the advertising? Yeah, so this has been a research question that we've wanted to be able to answer for quite some time. Um, the common way newspapers and others have looked at this, uh, and indeed it's not just the newspapers, it's the regulators and the ACCC and even the state government and the um, feds, is they've looked at the offers that retailers make in the market and they've said, well, you're offering new customers electricity prices of X or loan mortgage rates of X, and yet um, to your, your um, current customers, you're offering a much higher price, and therefore there's a um, loyalty tax. Um, we've found, having analysed a huge number of the um, Victorian household bills, that, in fact, the thesis of a loyalty tax is not quite right. The amount of money that households that switch retailer leave on the table, so the difference between the price they pay after they've switched and the price they'd pay if they'd found the best deal in the market, is not terribly much less than the amount of money that households leave on the table if they don't switch. So, in fact, um, generally across the piece, and it is a dispersion, there's a histogram, there's a range of customers, there's a huge data set, people are not the same, da da da, da. But the median customer and the central tendency in, in the um, data set is, is uh, clear that... Um, that most customers don't gain much when they switch. Mm. And in fact, it's unlikely to be worth their while to have switched, to go on the hassle of searching for a better deal and then switching to it. Mm. So, so um, if, fascinating. If that's the case, why has there been so much um, discussion and promotion about the benefit of switching? And, and, and governments have sort of led that uh, mm. you know, cheering as well. Mm. Yes. So um, I think governments have been very sensitive to 
the perspective that households are not getting a great deal in their electricity retail purchasing. And I see Echoes as exactly the same thing in mortgages and in house insurance and car insurance and so on. Um, and I think that perspective in electricity, which is the only area that I'm qualified to offer an informed view on, I think is right. Um, the retailer's margin in electricity for the typical customer is extraordinarily high, far, far higher than you see in um, grocery sales or insurance or, or a whole range of different goods and services that people buy on a on a basis that's actually ongoing, so they keep on buying it. And so the, I think, yep, go on. I was just going to ask you, stop you there, Bruce, just ask you to explain, I think people really don't know, what does a retailer in energy do? Do they just, is it just sending the bill and reading your meter? Just explain exactly what mm, the retailer does. Sure, sure. So uh, the origin of our electricity industry structure is following a sector restructuring program that governments introduced about 20 years ago. Um, and it split up the electricity industry between essentially the poles and wires. Mm-hmm. And there are uh, firms that undertake the operation of the poles and wires. And then the generation, the wholesale production and the retail. And the wholesale production and the retail in large measure is now joined up. So most of the retailers also produce. Um, the, the function of retailing is essentially acquiring electricity in large volumes, either making it yourself or buying it on the wholesale market or a combination of the two, and selling it to customers. So attracting customers to your product, uh, structuring sales arrangements with them, usually pretty standardized tariffs for the vast bulk, um, buying their rooftop solar feed-in if they have it, and billing them, and metering their services or, or, the, or, the, or the sort of um, it, it's you know it's the it's the net usage over a thirty day period in Victoria and roughly ninety day period in the rest of the country, in most cases, and then billing them. So they don't. So just, they don't. They don't do the poles and wires in the street, but they do everything from sort of your meter down, and they're also responsible for essentially buying the electricity that they on sell to you. Is that sort of what the retailers doing? Yes. So it's it's a pure sales business. It has relatively little capital outlay, the retailing function. It has, you know, a billing system, which now is not a big deal. It used to be a big deal, but now isn't a big deal. Um, And then essentially marketing and getting the revenue in. So it's a marketing sales business in the typical retail sense. So the barrier to entry is low. Almost anyone without a big um, balance sheet can enter into the market and purchase in the spot market and sell to the end customers. And, and that's the retailing function. Okay. And you said the margins are highest. Is that what you were saying before? Yeah. yeah. So um, in our data set, we find the typical retailer's margin. Um, uh, margin is hard to define in this business if you take the sales minus their cost of sales. So we're saying, let's look at the amount of money that customers leave on the table. So the difference between the price they're paying and the price they'd pay if they selected the best deal in the markets or the second best or the third best, there isn't a a huge gap between the best and second and third best for most customers. 
and that gap we're calling the retailer's margin. If you like, that's the that's the the surplus that customers are paying for not being able to engage in the market very effectively. So, now, so of course, that's a very high hurdle. Yeah. Um, but that's one version of measuring margin. So just to, to make it clear, you, 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 I've read here the typical remainer, as a customer who stays with their current supplier, left $208 a year or 20% of the bill on the table. Does that mean that they're, they're giving up the possibility of a 20% discount by switching? Yes, yes. But, when they, but you're saying, but when they switched and all the other costs involved, that 20% is not really achievable or it is achievable? Um, it, it can be achieved if the customer knows the best deal for them. Okay. So if they're able to find which retailer is offering the best deal and they can choose most most customers, and it varies based on whether they've got rooftop solar and which area they live in and tariff structure and so on, but most customers can choose from one of 18 to 20 uh, firms that will sell to them, and they can choose typically between 250 to 400 different retail offers. So if the customer was able to understand all that and then engage and find the best, then then the gap between the offer that they did select and the offer that they could as if they were astute buyers is the amount of money that they're leaving on the table after having switched. So I, I get the sense from that is that because of the complexity and the number of the offers, switching always doesn't give you that much better outcome. But by the same token, there is some saving, as I understand it. And then secondly, yeah. <coughs> has it improved? Because one of the challenges in the market used to be that you used to go on a deal that gave you a big discount of 18 to 20% or something. It lasted for 12 months. At the end of the 12 months, if you did nothing, you reverted back to the standard tariff. Has that all gone? Are we now sort of so that there's sort of this, the loyalty tax of anything has been reduced? Um, so, look, it's it's hard to really know. This. Some retailers did that sort of offer. So uh, I've got a loss leader or a fantastically discounted product, which I must stress is problematic because people don't understand cents per kilowatt hour as a price mm-hmm. of, of power. They understand cents per, per um, liter of milk or of petrol, but cents cents per, per um, you know, power, power unit is not something that they can easily grasp. And so what the retailers found that people could relate to was a discount. So they said, here's a lucrative discount, and people judged it by that. In fact, we find discount as, a, as an indicator of a good deal is, is a pretty poor indicator. Right. There are many deals with fantastically high-sounding discounts that, in fact, you're not paying a better deal than others which have no discount. And, and that's so, because but, uh, retailers have different base rates and different tariff indeed. scales, right? Okay. Yes, yes, indeed. So, so you know, this idea that there's a discounted offer and then the price goes up is is actually not a certain argument because in, in many cases people weren't getting the best deal anyway. But even so, I think that tendency of give people a discount and then withdraw it in one fell swoop, I think that fell away pretty quickly because translated into bill increases of the equivalent of sort of three to four hundred bucks per year per household and people actually noticed that. Right. And so I think I think the retailers were much more nuanced. 
and they changed either the underlying rate or the value of the discount in stages. So uh, actually analyzing customers' bills and seeing what's stated on them, and we find many bills with multiple discounts. Some at the front of the bill and others at the back of the bill and others are one-off and others are permanent. Some are on energy and some are on daily charge and some are on both. So the retailers have sort of sought to extract more money in a progressive fashion. Okay, so to, to wrap this up, Bruce, just for people listening, um, so I'm a little confused. Should they still make the effort to try to switch? Um, to be perfectly honest, looking at what we see, we think in the vast bulk of cases, it's not going to be worth their while simply because the time and effort they'll expend searching and switching is not worth their while. But having said all that, there's big gains to be had if they can. So my advice to people practically would be, if you reckon you're an astute buyer and you know the market, engage in it. Mm. If you don't, yeah. Um, be very sceptical and be very sceptical of people that claim to offer you advice in your best interest. Okay, mate. In fact, uh, that's part of the rent, you know, the rent process. Okay, fantastic. Thanks for your insights. Dead right. Thank you, Peter. That's Bruce Mountain, who is Professor and Director of Victorian Energy Policy Centre. Well, Paul, that's the end of a show where we, I hope we've tidied up a whole lot of confusion. Well, I think we had some fairly complex subjects there, particularly around uh, energy policy, energy pricing, uh, divorce, and Ross, of course, made uh, the whole situation and what we need to do a lot, yeah. a lot simpler. So hopefully we've added a little bit of, I won't say financial clarity, but at least... Well, I think the energy prices is a, is, a, yeah. is a bottom line. But, yeah, look, I think the, the bottom line is that the Switzer program is in the business of deconfusing. Yeah, we'll think of the right word for a new <laughs> word for deconfusion. There's well, a, well, there, was a, there was a single inverted commas around the deconfusing. Ah, <laughs> uh-huh, okay, of course. Well, that, a great show, Peter. Okay, thanks very much, guys. That's The Switzer Show. We'll talk to you next week.